Welcome to Waypoint, an Oklahoma human services podcast intended to inform, educate, and enhance collaboration in service to Oklahomans. I'm Comfort. And I'm Casey. And we're on this journey with you together. On today's episode, we're speaking with Oklahoma Secretary of Human Services and OKDHS Director Justin Brown. Secretary Brown was named OKDHS Director in June 2019, and under his leadership, OKDHS is working to revolutionize the delivery of human services to benefit all Oklahomans and trailblaze innovative strategies that can be replicated across the country. Thank you for being here today, Secretary yes. Brown. Great. Yeah, absolutely. So are we on? Is that what we're doing? We're on. We're, on. we're, gonna we're go actually, there's not like, like the producer thing where okay. you... Okay. <laughs> now we're on. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. It is an honor being here, to be perfectly honest. I've been excited about this moment for many months. As we began, you know, sort of building this room, um, really around that priority of making sure that our team knows what's happening in our agency, is their agency, and uh, just the thought that we could have uh, multiple ways of reaching out, of course, you know, text ways like, you know, Yammer and mm-hmm. InfoNet and email and all those things, but also a little more personal way of doing that where, uh, you know, we've got teams driving around the state all the time and have the op- them having the opportunity to engage with, you know, folks in the agency or even outside the agency to understand what's happening here has been super exciting. So mm-hmm. it was a long way of saying thank you very much for having me. <laughs> I told you exciting. I was long-winded. <laughs> it's an exciting time. So let, let's start. Talk about your journey to becoming the OKDHS director and, you know, what this last, it's almost been two years. Can you believe it? What this last I nearly, cannot. I yeah. know, it's crazy. It, it feels, in some ways, it feels like two months, and in some ways, it feels like two decades. <laughs> yeah. It has been a different um, experience. So um, somebody pointed out sort of at the end of 2020 that it's been longer, I've been director longer in a pandemic than outside of a pandemic. Oh, that's so that's true. isn't that wild? So um, so your question was really about how I got here, uh, and I'm happy to share that story. Um, so uh, I come from the private sector. I was in, in business before being here at the agency, and the business that I ran was a senior living business. So we owned and operated assisted living mem- and memory care communities in three states. And um, so we were blessed to care with residents with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia every day. And okay. uh, it was truly a passion for me in that space. <clears throat> um, in 2019, uh, I made a decision for our business to outsource the management of that business to a company in from Denver uh, and really didn't know what that meant for me personally. Um, that had been my whole life for 11 years with CEO of that company. And um, I just sort of knew it was the right thing to do for a number of reasons. It was sort of an industry thing that was happening, consolidating management. And um, I signed that agreement uh, April the 1st of 2019. And 16 days later, I got a call from the head of transition for the governor. Um, and the governor and I had never met. And uh, in fact, don't tell him, but um, he probably doesn't remember but during the campaign, he called and asked for a campaign donation. I told him no because I was supporting his opponent. <laughs> and um, so don't tell him that. Whoops. I know that nobody <laughs> – no, he um, – so anyways, we did not have any personal connection prior to, and I had just come to them uh, through a number of sources as somebody who um, you know, may have the, the interest or, or the personality. In fact, he called – the head of transition called, and he said, um, you know, hey, here's the potential opportunity. And he said, the governor wants to know if you're interested in serving your state. 
and of course, I've just come, I'm still in the private sector. I intended to be around that business continued. And I said, um, no, I'm good. Thank you very much. And he said, uh, well, if you're 1% interested, we should talk again. Because it was just a cold call. I'd never even thought about it, heard about it, anything. Crazy. And, uh, and so I said, okay, I'll bite the hook. I'm 1% interested. What does that mean? And so for the next 10 days or so, um, he and I talked a lot. I talked to uh, you know lots of different folks. Um, cabinet secretary at the time was Steve Buck, uh, Human Services Cabinet. Talked to Steve quite a few times and, and some other folks in the administration really trying to understand what the governor was trying to do uh, with the state. He had been governor for about three months at that time. And, um, and again, never met him, having never met him, I, I didn't know him at all. And so um, after 10 days, I finally sat down with the governor for a cup of coffee one morning at 6.30 in the morning at the governor's mansion. And uh, we talked for an hour and a half about culture and philosophy and faith and those sorts of things. And um, after that, at the end of that meeting, I told him, listen, if you say no to me, I'm good. Uh, you know, life is fine. I'll figure it out. But if you say yes to me and I say no to you, I'll think about it every day for the rest of my life. And I don't have anything like that, and I'm not going to start now. So um, about three days later, he called and said, Justin, we think you're the guy. And I said, um, okay, I'm in. So exactly 60 days from the day of that first phone call, uh, 60 days later was my first day as uh, agency director for the Department and of Human Services. And it's been a whirlwind ever it's since. It's been wild. <laughs> it has been wild. Um, really incredible, and we can talk more about sort of you know the things that I've seen and 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 uh, sort of what the strategy looks like but that's how I got there uh, got here uh, was was through a pretty uh, serendipitous path mm-hmm. that's the best way I think mm-hmm. absolutely I'm interested to know like what was your perception of Oklahoma DHS before you began working here yeah great question so um, I had a couple of um, perceptions before coming so uh, it's been almost two years Casey to your point um, 24 months ago, it's been 22 months, 24 months ago, my impression of the agency was what I saw on the evening news. And that's the only mm-hmm. uh, uh, impression that I had. And what I very quickly came to identify was that the truth about the Department of Human Services is actually 180 degrees different from mm-hmm. what you see online, that for every bad story that you hear, there are a thousand incredible stories that Absolutely. happen within this agency. And to be honest, we have sort of stunk at telling the stories. First of all, there's so many of them, and that's mm-hmm. hard to do. But um, we, we, we as an agency, and what you'll, we may talk about later is this concept of True North and uh, Executive Leadership True North number six is, re- is telling our story in a better way and reframing the narrative in the public about DHS. And so, um, anyway, so that was my impression. It is was completely wrong. Um, there was not a single part of what I thought about DHS uh, before coming uh, that was actually accurate. The other impression I had um, was really my impression of what a state employee is. Um, so coming from the private sector, having zero yes, I want to hear what you thought yeah, we were absolutely <laughs> no. I, I, I talk about this all the time. Um, so my last experience in the Capitol and with state government was in 1993 when I was a House page. I was in high school, okay. right? So no experience before. So I had I bought in to the narrative, pub, sort of a public narrative around what government employees are, and the truth, much like my um, impression of the agency, the truth of what an empl- state employee is, is, is 180 degrees difference. It's completely, I was so uninformed and ignorant before coming here about what a state employee is. I have seen not only so much dedication and, com- and passion and mm-hmm. commitment here, but so much incredible professionalism and the qualifications. And I mean, people are, I mean, it, maybe it's, 
just our agency. I have a feeling it's not, but um, I like to say that we have the best workforce in the in the state of Oklahoma. We do. But uh, I was just so wrong. And so I own that. I mean, I own that here on this podcast. I own that when I'm talking to my friends who are still, uh, those of uh, whom are still in the, uh, the private sector. Uh, I own that in the public. I own that with my family. I mean, everywhere I go, I talk about, listen, if you have an impression other than the one I have, you are just wrong. So those, those is my impression. Well, way to own your changing perception. Not a lot of people can do that. Um, hey, you know, uh, there, there are probably a lot of things that, uh, that, uh, that I can change over time and need to change over time as we just become more educated on, on, mm-hmm. uh, on the world. And uh, I really just had no engagement. And so the, the public narrative is just wrong. And so it's up to us to, to change that. That's right. Mm-hmm. So what are some, in, in these past couple of years, what are some of your proudest accomplishments in the agency? And then what are some of the things you're most proud of as the, of, of I guess, maybe the agency and its employees as a whole? Wow. Um, <laughs> this is the time that I wish I had read the questions ahead of time. Um, no, so I have, I have a ton, only because there's so many of them. I, I, I know we only have a, a short period of time to talk. Um, probably proudest accomplishments um, that, that we have uh, sort of undertaken here at the agency is it starts with the development of this True North process. Um, our agency, my impression prior to me coming was we did, and still to this day, we did so much for so many people, and we still do, but it wasn't necessarily refined into, you know, strategic um, philosophies. And that's what True North is. It, I know it comes across, unless you've had the opportunity to engage directly with our leadership teams or or um, with some of the philosophies themselves. I know it comes across sometimes as sort of corporate speak or slogan, but this concept around True North. Um, really helps to refine the approach that we're taking. It helps us to to know why we're here at, at our core. And part of the the insight around what a state employee is, um, you have you the things I always share is that the people are here for a reason, you know, especially in our agency. Our team is here to serve. You know, they may have lived experience in the worlds that we're in. Um, or it's just core to who they are. Mm-hmm. I don't have personal lived experience in the work that we do, but um, but I am. I mean, I'm here to serve. That is my purpose, and that is everybody's here. Everybody's purpose as well. So this true north concept allows us to identify where we're here to serve, and then to to devote specific resources, the the limited resources, both from a financial perspective, but also of limited manpower resources to those things that we believe are important for us. And so this True North process, we came, we started by talking with the teams. It wasn't a top-down approach at all. In fact, that's sort of the beauty of me coming from the outside is how, how was I going to walk in and build a strategy for these divisions with thousands of employees who've been around since the 1940s, right? It's just not going to happen, mm-hmm. uh, and nor should it happen. And so um, that's why we built this True North strategy where we talked with the agencies and the divisions and said, what's important to you? And that's where we built this from. So it's really a ground-up approach, a grassroots approach to strategic thinking. So that's uh, probably one of the biggest. Um, is that but, the way you ran your business, too? To have uh, like that inclusive, innovative. Yeah, great question. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, and it, In but, your family as well, right? Of course, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We do goal setting as a family, um, which, is, which is really important because, uh, and I talk about this regularly as well here and with other agencies, is... Um, if if you if you vision and goal set together, 
um, then I know, Casey, what your goals are and you know what mine are. And instead of us fighting independently for our goals, we're fighting you know, collaboratively together for one another's goals, uh, especially in this agency where people are here to serve and their goals are very well aligned with one another's goals. So uh, I do that with my family. We did that with our business. Um, and here, even more importantly, with an agency this size, we have to know where all of us are mm-hmm. uh, and what we're, what we're striving for. So that's the, that's the true north has probably been uh, one of the foundational elements that's really going to allow us to propel and launch this year so many incredible projects that we're working mm-hmm. on. Um, and then so the other one that I will also share um, and I could, I could keep going forever. Of course, there are unbelievable projects that happen in the divisions, but, but from an agency perspective, I'll, I'll talk about two. Um, the second one is changing the distribution model for human services. Um, today, we require the people that we serve to fall to a certain level of despair mm-hmm. to reach out to the state for help. You know, if I, I picture it like a game of shoots and ladders. And if you've envisioned the game board, there are boxes all the way across. And those are sort of if, if, using hope terminology. And I know you're going to have Dr. Hellman on here, so we're going to educate more on hope. But uh, in hope terminology, those are our goals, those boxes that we're trying to get up the game board. And there are ladders that take you, you know, sort of higher up more quickly. And that there are shoots that take you, some cases, all the way down to the bottom back where you began. Well, I look at the social safety net and the services we provide as this this net underneath the entire game board. That's how it was developed. Mm-hmm. So that if you fall off, the safe safety net is there to catch you. I think that's the wrong model. That's a one-size-fits-all approach for the entire community when really the model ought to be small custom safety nets that follow you wherever you are on the game board. So if I have reached a certain job, you know, you know, level of my career and something happens to me, I don't know, I'm making up a, a, a medical issue mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. could be devastating for people. Instead of me falling all the way off the game board and again, reaching this certain level of despair, we should have a system that catches you where you are and puts you back on as close as possible to where you were. First of all, it's dignifying. I mean, I worked my whole life to get to this space and one event makes me fall all the Mm -hmm. way off the game board. But secondly, it's also much more financially wise for our state and our taxpayers and all this because it is crazy expensive to catch somebody when they fall from here to here rather than here to here, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, anyways, that's around a long way of saying that's how I look at the safety net. And the distribute the first key is the distribution model for human services. It's how we meet those that we serve where they are. And so our agency and government generally everywhere has always been this, you know, you show up at an office and we serve you and, you know, at the other side, on the other side of the glass wall. And that's how it works. When really we need to be in the communities embedded where our customers are. That's at schools. That's in um, they're at church sometimes. They're in um, youth services agencies wherever they are. That's where we need to go. And so, um, so I'm proud of the fact that lots of the work we're doing around the embedded worker strategy really is changing completely changing the distribution model for human services so that we can position our organization to meet those um, that need our help where they are when they need us. So um, really cool. Um, That's the other one. And then the last one that I just wanted to mention, and there are lots, but um, I think we have an opportunity that no organization in the state of Oklahoma has 
to truly build a culture of equity, diversity, and inclusion mm-hmm. and belonging. So the word belonging, I tacked onto the end of that because at some point I heard that and I thought, man, that's really what we're going for here is belonging. But we have this opportunity that nobody else has. We serve 1.5 million Oklahomans every year. This year will be 1.5 million Oklahomans. We do it with the eighth largest workforce in the state, regardless of private or public enterprise. We have a huge workforce, 6,300 employees. We have 92 locations. Now, that has shrunk because of this multi-channel embedded worker strategy. We're trying to get out to change the distribution model. Um, But that just shows you the reach and the opportunity that we have to meet people and to um, really build that culture. And we have to be leaders in that space. So I can talk a lot about this, but those are probably the three that immediately come to mind having not prepared. Those are the three that I'm most proud of. I just keep thinking, I I mean, I would say most of us that are employed by DHS at one time or another had thought that we needed to be more embedded. So then the pandemic happens and we decide to be a work from home agency. How did that play into the whole thing? It accelerated the strategy. So we um, we built this concept of embedded workers prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's executive leadership to North number two. I'm sorry. I know (laughs) I know if if people think it's a slogan or whatever, it is not. not. We absolutely live Mm -hmm. by the true north. And so, well, I would believe that. Look where we are. Absolutely. This conversation. Hey, that's right. (laughs) So um, so before the pandemic, this was, you know, probably fall of 2019. We finalized the agency wide true north. Number two is removing systemic barriers that keep our customers from being successful. And so that really is the multi-channel embedded worker strategy. So um, we actually made an order for 6,000 laptops before the pandemic. Um, So we were ahead just fortuitously because that was our strategy beforehand in equipping our team with the technology they needed. Now, um, the pandemic came fast and we didn't have them all in yet, Mm -hmm. nor did we have... Uh, all of the cell phones and the hotspots and, I mean, mm-hmm. all of the things that we needed. Wasn't that a crazy time? Y'all? It was nuts. Can we just reflect on that for a while? Yes. <laughs> that first few weeks, that was wild. It was. <laughs> and so much uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I would, as we reflect, we cannot forget that our agency stood up in that time when there were other organizations, not necessarily state organizations, but organizations all over the country that, you know, closed fell their doors off. and mm-hmm. fell apart. This workforce stood up for the community to serve those in need. The demand was through the roof. People were trying to figure out how to work from home. We were trying to equip people with technology. I mean, it was hard, but we served. We didn't. Uh, anyways, uh, I'm proud of the of the organization and the and actually and the workforce. I talk about that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, ultimately, we had this strategy in place at the before the pandemic. The pandemic hits. We immediately launch into like fire mode. It's a, it's a, it's on fire. We got to go. And so, and it was, and so we equipped people with all the tech they needed. And then we started to look at what a, what budget issues may result from the pandemic. And that last, this budget period we're in right now, which uh, the cycle began in about the early fall of 2020. No, we re, I'm sorry, there was a board of equalization meeting. We revisited it in the spring of 2020 as all this was happening. We were very fearful um, as an agency, but also statewide of what was going to happen with budgets for the upcoming two years. I mean, we saw the economy um, hit. We saw devastation potentially coming from uh, the world. 
I'm just like, what would it have been like to be the director of DHS, a pandemic hits? Like, what do you even do in that moment? That's a lot of responsibility. Not a job I would want. (laughs) Yes. Well, um, it was great. It it was terrible, but it was great at the same time. Um, So we we were really fearful of what the budget situation was going to look like for the next couple of years. And so, um, again, part of that um, bottoms-up approach that we have utilized in the management here is we brought all of those divisions together and started talking about budget way before we ever heard that there was going to be a budget reduction. Because I was committed to the fact that our agency wasn't going to be responsive to a budget reduction. We were going to be proactive, not necessarily in reducing our own budget, but in making sure we're not in emergency mode. And that's what big organizations do. It's like, okay. And we were in emergency mode. Oh, yes. But we weren't yet from a budget perspective. So we we had time to plan and strategize what we were going to do. And we had built this true north, so we knew what our priorities were. So when the budget reduction came, which was about $38 million, which is a big number for us, we knew what our priorities were. And those priorities were really two things. We prioritized two things. The first was the the services that we provide to our customers. We were committed to not impacting the people that we serve. And then the second was the workforce that is so critical in serving those people. And so those were our two commitments. And when you prioritize things, you deprioritize other things. And so when we learned... um, you know, we learned uh, how to remote work through the pandemic. We also learned that our workforce likes to remote work. And so I can talk about that, some of the survey numbers and statistics (laughs) and all that. Um, And then we got this budget reduction. It was very clear that one of the places that we need to to deprioritize and to reduce was in the real estate footprint. So we had 92 buildings. We're now, uh, we've closed 31 buildings, I believe is the number. And, but it's important to know And this is a message that needs to be shared, not just with our team, but with people on the outside, that when we leave a DHS county office, maybe a 20,000 square foot building somewhere that says Department of Human Services on the side, that does not mean we are leaving a community in person. We are actually building partnerships to where we have um, true relationships in those communities and actually more physical locations to meet our customers in. So I'll give you an example. The first 13 buildings we closed, we had more than 100 community partnerships where we had MOU'd space that we, sometimes we had the keys for overnight visit. So we actually today, after closing 31 buildings, have uh, more than 100 partnerships in those locations, and we're not done. Awesome. You know, some communities have great partnerships because they have, you know, providers in the community, whether it be a church or a, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. that have raised their hand. And some, there's, we're short and we need more. So the team needs to know if you have a great partner in your county or your community and you think it would be great for us to reach out to them, please elevate that Mm -hmm. so that we can continue to build partnerships. That is truly the direction we're heading. So all of that stuff, I know it was a long way. I told you I was long-winded, but um, a long way of getting to um, the change of the distribution model. And it really accelerated because of uh, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So with all of those, with all of that transformation that's happened in this past year, what do you see going forward? Like now that we're starting to come out of the pandemic and things are starting to normalize a bit in communities, what do you see for the future? So there's a couple of things we could talk about. Um, the first one that I want to make sure to mention, because, um, one of the audiences here with this podcast is our workforce. Um, I see, so for the long term, and we've already shared this with the agency, we will be a maximum of two days a week in the office. So that's, when I say long term, that's long term. That's 
There is no intent to change that ever. Now, of course, with 6,000 people that serve in lots of different spaces, there will be some that are required to be more because their job duties are just in person. Maybe it's somebody in a lobby that's helping to greet people when they come in. I mean, that's something that can only be done in person. So that's a broad stroke policy for maximum two days a week. But one of the things that really kept me up at night during this pandemic was we have teams who who lean on their in-person, their units to be their support network. Absolutely. Specifically in child welfare, but mm-hmm. also in other divisions as well. And so we can't only highlight child welfare, but when something bad happens and our team sees something, um, the first thing obviously is to make sure that the person they're serving is safe. And that's what our team prioritizes. But when that is complete, our team usually goes back to their unit to talk about what they just saw. Help improve decision-making, for one. I mean, if you're just looking practically, but emotionally, that is your support network. You really can't take it home. It's confidential first. And then secondly, we really do want to, to keep that work-life boundary there so that uh, home life try is, is, is intended to be home life. And I know that's hard for all of us. But um, so you lean on your, your support network, your unit in the office. And so when you're maximum two days a week in the office, that's difficult. I mean, for the last year when you're primarily remote, that's almost impossible. So um, our teams, division directors and, and their teams, are really working on with the overall policy being two days a week in the office, how do we, how do we continue to promote those in-person mm-hmm. bonds that help to support one another emotionally onboarding new employees. I mean, all yes. of this, it's all super important. So um, you asked a question about the long-term. First thing is workforce. Just know that we know the policies we're building don't apply to everyone. There are specific special circumstances that we have to keep in mind. And I had a great meeting with um, about 400 supervisors um, probably a week ago okay. and um, told them and, and shared with them like, Yes, these are big policies, but the key is flexibility. So if mm-hmm. you've got somebody who doesn't fit into that for whatever reason, please be flexible with them. You know, let's work towards a yes for whatever their needs are rather than being the automatic def- sort of deferred answer is, is or default mm-hmm. answer is no. So that's the first one. The second one, the future really is um, leaning into and pressing into this embedded worker strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, everywhere I go, um, for, again, for the most part, I'm trying not to speak in big general terms because there are always special circumstances. Okay. But for the most part, our team is fired up to be embedded. We did, I'll just give you one example. We've done this more than just this one. But in Oklahoma County, we sent out a survey to about 900 workers and said, this is what the embedded worker strategy mm-hmm. is. Would you be are interested? Are you interested? Yeah, That's right. And we had about 600 say yes wow. of the eight or 850 or whatever that number was. Which is incredible. And then the second question was, if yes, um, do you have somewhere that you might want to be embedded? And this was incredible to me. So we got answers all over the board. Honestly, the first thing that always came to mind when I wrote that question was, they're going to say places like you know food pantries, which makes total sense to me, sure. right? We provide SNAP and that's ideal. But we had in Oklahoma County alone, we had 53 people who answered police stations. Wow, yes. And I thought... I thought, man, that is a different level of service. Mm -hmm. You know, not only do you want to be in child welfare or AFS or whatever, truly serving already, but now you want to go to a police precinct to serve even more deeply. And uh, I was just honored by that. I mean, I sat there and when I shared that number with Chief Wade Gourley with the Oklahoma City Police Department, 
he was fired up too. Yeah. So we've already got, so to that end, just real quick, we've got uh, five or six teams already uh, built in police precincts alongside mental health professionals so that when a law enforcement officer is called to, a, to something and a firearm is not necessary, they have that social work team ready to, they are devoted to that. We're building technology to support them uh, and the calls are awesome like this is something we should talk about yes at some point or you all should talk about (laughs) but i can be on it too because i'm fired up about it yeah but um but they are serving deeply in the police precinct the first one was spring lake campus right over here in northeast oklahoma city but we're already in five or six others and uh ready to scale but that i mean that's a strategy that pays dividends for like generations to come oh yeah those are systemic changes for sure it's you can't so one of the bigger issues or bigger things that, that I'm thinking about these days is how do you institutionalize some of these changes? Because these are so big that big organizations like this have a tendency when something big happens and leadership changes or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of us are going to be here into perpetuity. How do you make sure that it sticks? And one of those ways, I sort of started to use this term, is burning the road behind us. Right. Like when you sell 31 buildings and there isn't a building to go back to, you know, you're in the community. That's that's where you are. And so we are 100 percent committed to this embedded worker Mm -hmm. strategy. Again, we have to make sure we get it right for our workforce and our customers. But it is the approach going forward. And that really helps us to build what I talked about earlier the safety net that follows people, you know, the game board makes it it sort of trivializes things, but uh, follows them where they go so that we can catch them, meet them. They don't have to fall to a level of despair to walk into a DHS county office. Mm -hmm. We could probably talk about DHS all day long, but I do want to know, like, who are you as a person? I know you're married, you have kids. Tell me about your personal life, if you will. I will. Um, Yes. So my wife and I started dating in high school. We're both from Oklahoma City. Okay. Um, We dated all through college at Oklahoma State. So I'm a cowboy. (laughs) Um, So we we were married in 2001. So this will be our 20 year anniversary here. Yeah. In August is our 20 year wedding anniversary. So super excited about that. And then you add another five or six years on top of that. So we've been together 25, 26 years. And uh, so we moved to Tulsa right out of uh, right out of Oklahoma State. Um, so I have a finance and accounting degree, and my wife has an elementary education degree. Okay. Yeah. So she was a teacher. Third, she did third grade and special ed substituting okay. and all of that, uh, which was great. And so we uh, we've got two kids. We have a 13 year old daughter, and we have a 12 year old son. Uh, actually, had his uh, birthday party at our house last night, and we oh. rented a uh, movie theater and watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> awesome. And uh, and with with 10 12 uh, year old boys. They skateboarded and all sorts of stuff. And cool. so and so um, I have needed two cups of coffee today because <laughs> they spent the night and they were all over. They didn't have school today for some teacher in service day. Anyways, so that's um, those are the my wife and, and kids. Uh, my wife st- actually also started a foundation for multiple sclerosis patients. Really? Yep. It's called the MS Bridge. Is that uh, something that she was affected by or knew Yeah, somebody? her father has MS. Really? Um, yeah. Okay. And so, of course, we've been together 25, 26 years. And so I, my father-in-law is, is like uh, a father to me, of course. Sure. And so um, he's just an incredible guy, wonderful family. And so they started a foundation when he retired um, and they called the MS Bridge. And so they raise money for Oklahomans with multiple sclerosis who can't pay for their treatments. Those treatments are extremely yes. expensive. Um, a handful of years ago, it was folded into the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation. is now the Oklahoma MS Center for Excellence uh, there. So she doesn't run it anymore because it was sort of brought into the OMRF. But uh, so that was so she was a teacher and uh, worked in the MS space. And so 
So you guys just have these hearts for like activism and community and passion. Where does that come from? Uh, You know, I I really don't know, to be honest. We just, for some reason, feel like, you know, the the, the saying that um, to whom much is given, much is expected. We've always sort of instilled that in our kids. Our daughter started a a soap business a while back. Uh, She doesn't do it anymore, but for a couple of years, she was selling soap and giving 100% of the profits to, I don't know if you're familiar with Donors Choose. It's an organization that Mm -hmm. people can donate money and give to to schools, to teachers, I mean, specifically to teachers to fund projects. So she gave all of the money to Donors Choose. And uh, so that was cool. And that's something you've instilled in her? Yeah, absolutely. It was her ideas. I mean, now I was there stirring soap and <laughs> yes. hitting the microwave buttons and all that stuff. <laughs> but yeah, it was totally with her. So anyways, it's uh, it's just been something that we do. I, we're not much in the way of TV watchers or, mm-hmm. I don't know, you can probably tell, you know, when I go home, we don't sit on the couch much and hang out. Is it's there a time that you're stuff. able to go home and just chill? Yeah, sure. Yeah? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I will tell you, we, we watch one show now and um, it's old episodes of Survivor. That's what we started watching. It's really hard to find a show that a 12 and a 13 year old can watch with family, right? With with us. Yeah. And so we watch Survivor almost every night with uh, my wife and I and kids. And it's really been this cool thing where we talk about strategy and they're really thinking steps ahead. So it's pretty cool. Anyways, this is not a Survivor commercial. What's it What's it like to be a dad and a father and also the director of DHS at the same time? Yeah. um, That's a tough question. It is definitely challenging in some ways. Um, of course, you see things, or I see things, as do lots, I mean, so many people in this agency that uh, you never wanted to or uh, hoped you would never see and and know that it happens. It definitely connects you deeper with your family. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps you to um, be mindful in the lessons that you're teaching your kids. Mm-hmm. I decided early on, so before I took the job, when I was talking to the governor about doing it, the first sort of 10 days or two weeks, um, I said, I, I decided I was going to bring my family into it with me. This wasn't something that I was going to do because I knew that it was going to be a time sacrifice away from them in their formative years. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I decided that I was going to talk with them about it. You know, not necessarily the, the tough stuff, but I wanted them to know what we do. And, you know, them being a part of our family is, is a mm-hmm. level of service for them as well, right? Just like everybody's families on this, on the, who listen to this podcast that are um, agency employees. Your family is serving alongside you. Very true. And so anyways, I brought them into the conversation the first day. And um, I've actually, I will tell you, I've had some of the greatest conversations of my life with any human being, with my family about making this decision and the work that we do. So it's it's in some cases really difficult because of those things that you see and, mm-hmm. you know, you all know all of that stuff. But it's also really rewarding because... I have so much to talk with them about, um, lessons that, that I may uh, be able to impart that I would not have had that exposure to otherwise. How do you strike that balance, too, uh, with your, in your own family? Because I know that's something we talk about amongst our employees all the time, striking that balance. Yeah, um, I would tell you I'm probably not very good at it. So uh, whatever I struggle? say right now is just let's start it with that. Um, the first part is bringing them into it to the extent you can. And so it's easier to strike that balance when they know that there's, there's passion and commitment and, and service behind it. Also, I, I have built some, some boundaries that I am really pretty good about keeping. So I do have a seven o'clock rule with my team, which is no texts or phone calls before 7 a.m. or after 7 p.m. Emails are fine. Teams messages are fine. 
a text or phone call because that's a different level of I need something unless it's an emergency. And those emergencies come up frequently, just like they do on everybody on this call. But that those boundaries exist and they are pretty well respected. So it's, you know, and, and I do the same. I don't, you know, I don't send text messages at four in the morning if I'm up thinking about something. Uh, I'll send an email or something. So um, you have to build in those boundaries when you are not in crisis or when you're not dealing with an emergency. It has to be something that you're mindful about. You think about um, and you bring the family into it. And so um, that's that's really what I've done. That's seven. That's seven o'clock rule is pretty is a pretty good rule. So um, to the extent people can, I would suggest some sort of boundary uh, development. Mm -hmm. Speaking of mindful, I don't know who came up with the mindfulness drop in session. Was that you? That was me. (laughs) I love those. They were good. They really are necessary. And if you intentionally do those, they are super helpful. Yeah. Early in the pandemic, um, Mm -hmm. when we were going home and we didn't have the technology that we needed and people were concerned about how we were going to serve our customers. And they still are. Again, I'm not. Uh, I don't want to pretend like we've achieved perfection here because we have not. But I just said, hey, you know, um, mental health is critical to our team. Mm-hmm. And um, and I actually have some news I may want to share on that here in a second. But uh, so we just – Colin Walkie is a state representative here in Oklahoma City. And he uh, is deep into mindfulness and meditation. And and so I just said, hey, you know, Representative Walkie, can, would you mind doing some, some mindfulness moments with us? Uh, I think we did it every day for – 90 mm-hmm. days or 60 days or something. And uh, we, we had hundreds and hundreds of people. The biggest issue was we they kept lim- the size of the room kept being limited. That was before Zoom allowed you to go to 5,000 or whatever. It was like 300. And so we'd mm-hmm. limit out. And so we would have people who couldn't get on, which was which stunk. But anyway, so that was great. Um, sort of back to this employee well-being concept. One of the executive leadership true norths is um, number three, which is becoming an elite employer. And a key component to that is work-life balance and recognizing the emotional and mental health needs of, of our team. Mm-hmm. Again, this hard work happens here. So the we are launching a change in our EAP program, which is, Please. so right now it's six uh, mm-hmm. visits. A year. We're actually building an app. We have an app that is allows for people 24 hours a day to talk to somebody. So yes. um, you can, and it's that's using, what we needed the it's, whole time. And it's in, you know, it's like it's not a phone. It's a like, person. Yeah, it's a it's like FaceTime. It's I think it actually uses. Do the you Zoom see like platform. the same person? Um, maybe. Okay. So it's sort of luck of the draw. You know, like if somebody's off work or whatever, that's yeah. sort of difficult. But it's an it's a manned sort of call center for our team. We're the first ones. Like they we this organization built this call center. Uh, for us to wow. launch all the changes and so what i keep in that great <laughs> so it's not public yet maybe this is like the big announcement for the podcast <laughs> but um but the but that's the idea is man something hard happens in you know 11 o'clock at night in woodward oklahoma um and you've got a child safe or a senior safe and you sit in your you know state car and you're like you decompress for a second and then you just need to talk to somebody just give me five minutes or an hour whatever and so that's what's available. And it does not take up your six, any of your six visits on EAP. That's it's, awesome. It's outside of that. So That is what we've been needing all the time. Isn't that cool? Thank you. Yes. Isn't that going to be amazing. great? So Thank again, you. with this, we're going to make mistakes on it, um, but we're committed to making sure that it's um, that it's the right tool. So we'll need feedback on how it's working and how mm-hmm. we can improve it. But uh, I'm so excited about that. Yes. Secondary trauma. That's a, that's a real thing. It's a real thing. <laughs> yeah. No I know. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes me think of hope because, I mean, 
so hopeful. And, and you've actually coined this year as the year mm-hmm. of hope. What does that mean to you? It is. So Executive Leadership True North Number 1 is becoming the largest ever hope-centered organization. And um, so immediately upon coming here to the agency, uh, Jamie Ledoux, our Chief Innovation Officer, shared with me, and former Child Welfare Director, shared mm-hmm. with me this concept of the science of hope. And actually, I also got it at the same time. So I was hit from two different places, from the First Lady, um, oh, Sarah yes. Stitt, mm-hmm. who is, okay. of course, deeply involved and committed to the science of hope. And so I, I had the opportunity to meet Chan Hellman, uh, who is just an incredible visionary in the space. And um, really got to understand what the science of hope is and understanding that it is measurable and we can drive the outcomes and has really three primary components, which are goal setting, uh, pathways, creation pathways, and then the third is agency and willpower. And immediately it clicked that our agency, we are the pathway for, for sometimes a million people at any one time in the state of Oklahoma. And... That came with, of course, a, a, um, an incredible excitement, but also an obligation for us to make sure that the people we serve and our workforce mm-hmm. understands what hope is and that they are, yes, servants. And we've talked a lot about that, but they are also truly the pathway for the most vulnerable people in the state of Oklahoma. And uh, so this year, 2021 is the year of hope. Um, I started, I coined that uh, right about the beginning of the year and really intending to um to leverage all the foundational work we did over the last year, 2020, even though it was a really tough year for lots of things we've already talked about. But um, we built serious foundations in the science of hope. I mean, we're using the same tech, same terminology here as an agency. I hear about hope all over the place. I hear about pathways and all this stuff. And so we built that foundation in 2020. And now it's time for us to to really, you know, sort of lean into it and jump on to what that means. So we are measuring hope. We've already measured in our workforce. And if you haven't seen the results of that survey, it's fantastic. We actually have very high collective hope as an agency, which surprised me some, to be honest, because we measured it right around that going to remote work where we didn't have all the tools that we needed as a workforce to be successful. And that's what collective hope is. And part of it is measures, you know, do you feel like you have the personal pathways to, to be successful in your job? So anyways, so we've measured in our workforce. Now we are uh, measuring in the people that we serve. So this is transformational. So uh, as we go into our embedded worker strategy, we're also equipping those embedded workers with technology that is a case management tool. So it eventually will be the replacement for IMS. I know nobody's disappointed that IMS will eventually go away because everybody (laughs) loves it so much. Um, I have actually personally committed that I will never learn IMS. Because I, if I, did I that too. yeah, did you? Okay, well, and it was also in part because I don't have the capacity for 900 screens, and I mean, it's horrible. But this will be the the uh, eventual replacement of IMS. But it's a casework tool built in Be a Neighbor. Um, mm-hmm. The the public does not see what the casework tool in Be a Neighbor is. It's actually incredible, and we keep evolving and building. But in that is a hope measurement uh, tool within the casework tool. And so that allows us when somebody walks in and meets an embedded worker for the first time, whether they're at a community hope center or they engage with uh, the police social work team or wherever, we measure hope for the first time in them. And then we connect them to resources. And then it also allows us to measure hope after we've made these interventions. So if we connect you with SNAP benefits or child care subsidy or whatever, we can measure hope again to see if the, the, if the interventions that we've made yeah. provide for rising hope scores 
Um, and then also Be a Neighbor has all of these neighbor organizations, hundreds of churches and nonprofits. I think we're close to 700 now that serve as well. So as we connect you to a mentorship program through Big Brothers and Big Sisters, for example, how does your hope score change with that connection and that relationship? And so in theory, over time, as we collect more and more data on hope scores moving based on the interventions we provide, we can start to invest our limited resources in those interventions that provide the most increase in hope scores. That is transformational um, because it allows us to take the money and money and resources we have Mm -hmm. to truly drive value with data um, around that. So um, the year of hope means lots of things, of course, uh, also through the lens of COVID-19. The, the vaccine has been a, a, you know, an element of hope for all of us. It is a pathway to those goals. So mm-hmm. um, just couldn't be more excited about the space that we're in in the, the science of hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to know, like, I know you said you're not a TV or movie person. Are you a reader? Sure. So and I say I'm not. I just we, we just don't have don't that much time. time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Survivor, yes, I'll talk a little bit about TV and then I'll talk a little bit about books <laughs> here in a second. But Survivor, yes, my two favorite movies are Casablanca. I'm an old man at heart. Like um, I'm not old by age, but I feel like I'm an old man at heart. Casablanca and um, The Godfather, those are my two favorites. Okay. And then um, my favorite TV show is not Survivor. It is The Andy Griffith Show. Okay. Yes. So um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's something deeply embedded in my psychology about um, past life, man. perhaps. Maybe. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> that so, small town like community feel. Mm-hmm. That's what our embedded workers there like. You go. They, hey, hey, there you go. There you go. Maybe that's where I got it from. It's <laughs> yeah. somewhere. Yeah. So um, those are my favorite sort of uh, shows and movies and all that. Um, I, I love Earth, Wind, and Fire, as most people may or may not know. Okay. My favorite band is, is Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, so as far as books go, I, I do love to read. Uh, again, not as much time as I, I would like. Um, I'm going to, I'll throw a couple of, currently I'm in the middle of, of one called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. So that's a, that's a really good book about um, trying to, to take time and build those work-life balances and that Slow sort of down. stuff. Yeah. Cause I go pretty fast, pretty hard. Um, so that's a good one. Um, really one of the favorite books I've read um, recently is called uh, Gentleman in Moscow. And that is, um, it's about the Bolshevik revolution, but um, it's, you know, based in the in the uh, middle part of the 1900s, early part of the 1900s, and um, it's historical fiction, mm-hmm. and um, a really great story of a guy who was held up and not um, he was sort of um, holed up, I guess, in a uh, hotel in Moscow because he couldn't leave, and uh, just his daily life. It's just super cool. So if if you're interested in fiction yeah. yet fiction that is sort of historically I love based, historical that's a good, you might try that one. So. Um, I've got probably 40 books on a stack that I need to get to because everybody says, oh, you should read this. And I'm, I immediately, like in that conversation, get on Amazon and I send it or... my way. Um, <laughs> but that means I have a bunch of books that I need to read. What does a typical like evening or weekend look like for you and your family? So our my daughter is a dancer. She goes to uh, Studio J in Edmond, which is a Christian-based dance studio. So she's been doing that. She's 13. She started when she was about three, I think. So she's close to 10 years in dance. And so this weekend will be dance competition (laughs) and dance competition. Uh, So we have two days of that, but my son plays uh, football, flag football. And so we'll shuttle him to football and, you know, uh, all of that. So lots of kids stuff, 12 and 13 year Mm -hmm. old, you know, that's what we're doing these days. Um, Yard work and I mean, regular dad stuff, regular dad stuff, you know, a blower on my backpack, you know, backpack blower blowing leaves and all that good stuff. So you're a normal person. uh, Yeah. Sometimes. (laughs) No, all all the time. Yeah. so this episode is going to launch the Waypoint podcast. 
what are your hopes and expectations for this podcast? What's your vision? Good question. Um, I would suggest that one of the bigger opportunities we have as an agency is to tell the truth about what happens here. Transparency is huge. So we have to tell the truth about humanity, which is hard sometimes because we deal with humanity. Mm -hmm. And those are the hard things, the, the things that, uh, again, I sort of knew about or heard about two years ago walking in the agency. So I think we have to have a level of transparency. Whether this podcast is the right way to do that or not is, you know, is probably specific to each situation. But there are people in the community who don't access the resources that we have for them that can really truly help to lift them and for them to lift themselves out of poverty. They don't take advantage of those resources because of the stigma of the three letters of our agency. When DHS shows up, I'm out. That's what the community says. And that is so unfortunate. Um, I'll tell a quick story. I know we're wrapping up, but uh, a little just before the pandemic, I went on a CPS ride along with. Um, I remember hearing. Yeah, about that. with Alicia, Oklahoma County, hero. This girl, I mean, she's incredible. Um, walking through and just totally, you know, the same as every other one, right? In CPS, they just walk through that door. You know, when something happens and there's a child at risk, there she's just she'd never been on the other side of that door. We just went mm -hmm. in. We were there for three hours. It was fall break, and um, I, I was essentially a glorified babysitter, right? I was sitting there with the kids, and they were home from school and, you know, playing. They were showing me Nintendo, and the dogs were all over me. That's what I was doing while she was doing the hard work, mm -hmm. interviews and, and all of that stuff. And the case was one of poverty, right? It was 90%, 80% of the work that we do in, in CPS mm -hmm. is, is really not an abuse. It's, it's neglect, and it's a mm -hmm. call because of poverty. And we left after three hours and we sat in the car. I said, okay, now tell me what happens now. And she said, well, I'll follow up on all of the leads and references and that sort of stuff. And we'll do some more sort of background stuff. But, um, you know, when it's, when I'm done with that, it's very likely that we'll send a letter just indicating that the case is, is closed and there's no merit, really no merit mm -hmm. behind it. And I said, okay, I understand that, but I want so much more. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, that doesn't that doesn't work, and I know it's just a function of the system that we built and so many calls and volume and all that. That that's all we really have the capacity for. And I said, let's let's try to solve a problem for this one family. Let's take um, let's get you and let's do let's build a multidisciplinary team with AFS because it was a poverty problem and they didn't have SNAP claims out. I mean, they didn't have any eligibility based resources through DHS. And we need a child support person because there was a, a non-custodial parent of the oldest child that was not around, nor mm -hmm. was there a child support case. So we convened this group, again, in person before the pandemic. And I said, okay, here's the situation. Let's make this successful for this family, right? Let's do everything we can. Let's throw the book at them and solve this problem so we never meet them. And maybe this can illustrate to us how we can rebuild the agency yes. and these processes from a bigger perspective. So we worked, we were on a tech string, all of us together for at least a month. Mm -hmm. And um, they would say, okay, well, we offered this. And I said, I don't offer it. Go to their house and give it to them, right? Like, let's not wait for them to come to us or send an email or whatever. So it doesn't happen. Go do it, <laughs> right? And, so, and they were all in. I'm not suggesting I was saying anything other than what sure. I was just opening up ideas. And um, after a month or two months, Alicia came to me and said, listen, we have done everything we can. And every time we offer something, they say no. And I said, then I wasn't serious about this, but I said, at some point they will say yes. I mean, if you offer them cash, they're going to say yes at some point. And she says, I don't think so. And I wasn't, again, I wasn't suggesting we offer them cash, but she said, 
every time we engage, they say no because we're DHS and they don't want DHS in their life. And that's, to me, the opportunity of, of communication methods like this is to change the narrative outside the agency and change the narrative inside the agency. So I'm, again, another long-winded answer for you, but I think you all have an opportunity with this uh, Waypoint podcast to tell the story of what's happening here and for our team to hear it and and understand that there are not the barriers that exist that we've all grown up with at DHS. Like, let's break down the walls. Call someone. Call me. If you got a problem, I mean, like, if there's something that you want to try, shoot me a Teams message. We'll try something. I mean, like, it's a safe place to, to try something and fail. It is a safe place to raise your hand if there's a problem. Do it. And tear down those barriers. Be focused on the person that you're there to serve that family that historically just needs a little bit of help, and then they're off, you know, on the, on their own, off to the races. So, um, I think that's what this opportunity is, and we can't underscore or trivialize the the impact of different communications channels when you're changing culture, because we've we've got to use every mechanism we can get. I hear all the time about, well, I hate Yammer, I hate Yammer, I hate Yammer, I hate whatever. Um, it's just a way we're trying to get yeah. it, get things out there, I right? Like it. <laughs> well, people. Well, there's a new thing called the Yammer Hammer. If you haven't heard that, that's the the mindset of when something comes on, we're just going to attack it. And that, hey, you know, that's the way social media is. We're all used to engaging in those platforms. So, uh, again, I think this this uh, podcast has a real opportunity to um, continue to share with that team that we're we're doing things different. They can do things different. And, um, you know, let's let's change the world. Mm -hmm. That's really what we're here. Yeah, to do. that's what I like best about your leadership style is including everybody and letting everyone have a voice. Mm -hmm. You really can bring change to this agency, folks. Here's the time. I think one of my last questions for you is where do you think if everything stays how it is and we keep moving forward, where do you see DHS in about five years? That's a long time. We're going so fast. Five years is a long time. If we keep at this pace, which I don't think we will, um, I, 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 think, I think that people will start and probably have start to see things, the change not be so dramatic. I mean, we had to jump in with immediate change, pandemic, all that stuff. So um, I think the, the, th the biggest thing in five years is we will be fully technology enabled, not necessarily for our workforce, which we will, and we're getting there already, but for the people that we serve. So I think that um, our customer is going to be able to get online in five years, definitely, um, or engage through their phone or whatever. There's a single front door to entry into all government services. And we will be able to truly deliver those seamlessly where it's not hard to navigate our website or to mm -hmm. find. We're not using the sort of the speak of the agency and the acronyms and all that stuff. Like if you want help, you know, go to here's this program and you don't even know what that program does. It's truly designed around the person we're trying to serve technology. I think we will be able to utilize new things like AI and machine learning to deliver those services to people before they fall into crisis. That's truly where we're trying to head is that, that executive leadership to North number eight, which is uh, moving upstream to solve mm -hmm. problems for families before they become in crisis. The way to do that is you start with the distribution model change, physical distribution, and you start to develop technology that also changes the way that people engage with government. So mm -hmm. um, I also believe, and we are already this way, we are one of the more collaborative organizations that I've ever been a part of now. We're tearing down barriers, not just internally, but also with our 
our partners, health department, healthcare authority, DMH, all these other organizations that serve the same people that we do. Um, we're collaborating like we never have, and they are too. I'm not suggesting it's just us. So this culture of working together to serve um, will be one that you you will see in person, live in the agency. And if you're somebody in the community, it will be seamless transitions between DHS services and DMH services. You don't even know that you, you went from one agency to the other. We're just here to serve you as a, as a human being. Love it. Um, any parting words? Um, the only one I have is thank you. I, uh, I say this all the time. Our team is just incredible. Uh, and I've already talked about it on this uh, podcast, but it is a true honor to serve with the people um, that work in this agency. And um, I'm just so thankful to be here in this time right now, uh, to be here on the podcast, the, the first one, but uh, but also to be in the agency in 2021, where we have truly be rebuilt from a foundational perspective. And now it is time to just thrive. Yes, I love it. Director Brown, thank you so much for coming today yes, and giving us your you. time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you for listening to our inaugural episode of Waypoint, where we're on this journey together. We hope you'll continue to join us on this podcast where we'll explore topics that affect and uplift Oklahomans. To listen to future Waypoint episodes or raise your hand to share innovative ideas, visit ourokdhs.org. Okay